I need to learn how to love my lesser evolved parts. Because otherwise, my inner perfectionist, my inner critic is just going to judge the hell out of those parts. When I'm judging those parts in me and I, I deny those parts, I deny my shadow, I can't help but do the same thing in all my relationships. And it just never ends well. You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. This episode is a conversation with Todd Norian, author of Tantra Yoga, Journey to Unbreakable Wholeness, a memoir. Todd is a musician, founder of Ashaya Yoga, and a Kripalu Legacy faculty member. A student of yoga since 1980, Todd brings therapeutic biomechanical knowledge and an unapologetic sense of humor to everything he does. Let's begin. A lot of times I'll start a podcast by asking the guest about how they found yoga and why they decided to start teaching. And I feel like that is so in your book and we're probably going to get to a lot of that. So where I'd like to start today is just asking you what aspect of yoga feels most alive for you right now today? Oh, what a great question. One of the foundations of my method is that everything in life is for our awakening. And it's really an attitude because to be able to say it and mean it means that no matter what happens in life, life has your back. It's like a path of radical affirmation, radical love. And that's the place that I start always, which helps me instead of run away from challenges, inquire into them. I still sometimes run away, but it's like I inquire into because I have to, I take this perspective that if it's happening, it's meant to be happening. How is it happening? And how is a much better question than why is it happening? That's kind of the wrong question, but how is this happening? Or how is this coming up for me at this time? If everything, in fact, is for our awakening, and that this life journey is a journey of the heart, the journey of the heart means that we first open to everything, saying yes to life, and then we can step back and actually set healthy self-boundaries and say, no, I don't think I'm going to go in that direction. And then in that way, I feel like, you know, grace or this bigger energy is supporting us all the time. And that's, that's a, a big spiritual teaching, but it's really true. But I have to remind myself to bring it down, you know, from the ethers, from this esoteric teaching to sort of landing field level of life, that if I say everything in life is for my awakening, it helps me to open to the challenges and sometimes the trigger for my own core wounds to stand in the gift of the wound to extract the teaching. So that's, that's what inspires me <laughs> these days. And how has that come up today? Well, a lot of ways. I'm recently in a relationship and, you know, we, we had a little kerfuffle. And so the relationship, you know, when you have an intimate relationship, which is wonderful based in tantric principles, to want to be conscious in it, then the other person becomes a mirror. 
you know, so you're in this to see yourself more. And that's always been my intention. And, and so I'm, you know, with a miscommunication, which led to a big misunderstanding. And I think we're both trying to sort it out, but that's, what's coming up for me is how is this for my awakening? What can I learn from this? Basically, how can I continue to learn, grow and become a better person and a better partner and better yoga teacher, all, all of it, you know, so I could choose not to look at it. I could choose to just shut my heart down. Okay. That's not okay. I feel hurt. I feel pain. Then I call it limbic living. I go into the limbic mind, which is all about black and white, right and wrong. And what I see is that it's living on the horizontal axis, which is governed by karma laws of cause and effect. Now, we have to abide by the laws of karma, but they do not transform anything. It's like chewing the cud over and over again. It does not get you anywhere. So if we were to come back together to try to work out this relationship, we would need to, and this is just my thought, need to come together in favor of a win-win outcome. And if anybody is the loser, we both lose. And I think that's a really wonderful frame, like how to get through an experience. So as long as I'm the villain, I said something insensitive and then triggered a core wound, and then we go back and forth, then I'm wrong, she's right. And there's no transformation in that, you know, and there's no listening, you know, there's only one side, her side, and I can't, I, I can't even talk anymore. So I'm giving space. So that's the karmic, the horizontal axis. But we know there's a vertical axis, and this is the lila axis. So, you know, karma means action, and it means action, reaction. But lila, and, and, and karma is governed by consequence. There's three things. I'm not going to get this totally right, but consequence, and then there's like predictability, and then there's outcome. In the lila vertical axis, which is the transformational axis, and you know, we all know Leela means divine play, is Leela is governed by entanglement, chaos, and unpredictability. And it's holding a space for not knowing everything, knowing that my experience and my truth is only part of it. And the other truth is held by the other person, you know? But maybe my truth is not her truth, and maybe her truth is not my truth. So we have to come, come to some consensus. And in that play of Leela, what's absolutely necessary is surrender. You know, we need to give up a little bit of our view to get on the other side, to entertain the other person's view. But we don't want to give up all of it because there is some truth to what we're experiencing and what we're feeling, you know. So this idea of the play between karma and Leela, karma is work, Leela is play. And play is about beingness. It's about spirituality. It's about, it's about let's step back and let's try to broaden our perspective. What is this about? And you know, as human beings, we are extraordinarily complex and nuanced. There is no black and white. And so if someone is in the black and white, that's limbic thinking, you know, limbic living, which only comes from a survival mode, you know, and the only way to deal with that is to shut down, 
go away and make safe, you know, make myself safe, you know, or attack, you know, it's the fight or flight. So we need to shift from limbic to prefrontal cortex, which is where our consciousness is, where our creativity is. And in fact, where the space of not just survival, but to actually be able to thrive in our relationships and thrive in life. That's the root of everything in life is for my awakening. There's no way I can believe that if I'm stuck in limbic living. So the invitation in a challenge, and what I'm going through right now, since you asked me, is to help myself start to migrate from the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, to the parasympathetic nervous system, rest and digest, to let myself really look deeply without reacting. And only if I'm sort of not, not in this limbic state, which is basically anger, blame, right and wrong, black and white, fear, basically, then I'll forever be on this karmic path trying to get it right. But Leela, it's like, it's about being this. Leela plays for no reason at all. I call it unreasonable happiness, being happy for no reason at all. Karma is the waves on the surface of the ocean. Leela is the depth of stillness of the ocean itself. So that's how I like to approach my life. Like, can I, first of all, surf the waves on the surface so I get better at the hor horizontal axis, the, the karmic field, because that's going to create more ease, you know, so that I'm not resisting the waves. I can actually let go into them, embrace them, eventually have fun with them, but not when I'm feeling pain, and shift to this vertical axis, which really, it's not so much transcendence like to get out of our embodiment in some way for a higher reality, but it offers a higher frequency, a higher perspective, and a kind of safety where I feel like life has my back, everything life is for my awakening, there's nothing wrong or bad here, that I can then begin to grasp and hold my uh, spiritual wisdom. And always when I can get to the lilac access, I find creative solutions to really close down problems. And then life, life either works out or it doesn't. Our relationships are either going to work out or they don't. They work out, they tend to work out when both people are willing to shift axes, to acknowledge this karmic field, which we're, we can't do anything about. Like we are thrown from our conditioning, from our samskaras, from our imprints of the past. But we can resist them or deny them, or we can embrace the shortcomings. And that leads to the whole teaching about I am shadow and light, and the greater my light, the greater my shadow. So can I embrace those lesser evolved parts of myself? Yes, I own, I, I said the wrong thing or a hurtful thing. So I own that, but then how to really shift the vertical axis, you know, which is really now what? And how can I make it so that we're both winners? And unless two people in a conflict are both make each other a winner. Like we have to give each other a win. We are sort of damned in the blame game, mm -hmm. which only leads to breakup and then more separation, isolation. It doesn't have to, but that's where it goes. So you've had a pretty 
unusual life experience to develop this worldview and to practice it, which you've laid out in this book, this memoir, just as being kind of so close to the epicenter of two of the most, I think, well-known scandals and heartbreaks in yoga. Until I read this book, I didn't realize that you were so deep in Kripalu at that time, mm -hmm. and then in Anusara. So and is there anybody else who was part of both of those, or are you the only person? I don't know any one of my colleagues who were both immersed in, in both worlds. You know? So yeah, I think I'm unique in that way, as we're all unique in the ways that we are. So, What has come from those experiences? Like, how, how do you look back on those two periods of your life and say, wow, this was for my awakening? Yeah, how? Right. Well, uh, that's the vertical axis, Leela, with a playful heart. I think I look back and I bow with immense gratitude for the grace that I received while there. I have another sort of set of teachings that I want to die without regret. For that to happen, I have to live with no regrets. Regret is not all bad. Regret can give us understanding. It helps us to not repeat that again, you know, so it's part of it. But to hold regret to the extent that it's debilitating and it pulls us down, regret can be sort of unmaintained. Regret is quicksand that pulls us deeply and eventually into guilt and then sadness, depression, and, you know, the whole works. So I have no regrets. And I went through a full range of emotion. You know, I mean, consider, think about this. I was involved with Kripalu for 17 years. You know, I was an Iyengar teacher for three years before I finally went to Kripalu. And then 17 years at Kripalu there. And I was, you know, the one of the main teacher trainers of, you know, I trained over a thousand Kripalu teachers during my stay and was very close to the guru at the time, their Amrit Desai. And it was this amazing life, amazing lifestyle. And my focus was on my spiritual growth and, you know, my heart and all that. So I think what happens when there's a breach of trust, you know, because the scandal was he denied he was having sex with some of the students and then he finally admitted it after they came out and said, no, this really did happen. I was, had no idea. So it's like the founder himself was also composed of shadow and light, you know, and his light was very bright and shadow was very dark. I just didn't have the awareness to see it. You know, some of my colleagues there did see it. So they weren't as devastated when it happened, when it finally came out. But I was devastated because I was so close to him. You know, I was on the the guru massage team. So I was trained to give these intense two to three hour elbow depth massages on this guru's body that had no tension in it. And I, you know, would feel completely obliterated with Shakti after I was with him for that long. We did yoga together. We worked out together. I was on the yoga development team and he said he wanted to bring more alignment into Kripalu and all that. So you know, it was, we had a really great connection. So as far as a spiritual teacher, I was given so much, so much wisdom and teachings and experience. And then the community was really fabulous. There was so much support, friendship, fun, you know, crazy, crazy things that we did, uh, which I mentioned some of them in the book. 
that was my spiritual upbringing. So with a bond and a trust that deep, when it's broken, that hurts. And I went into a tailspin. I would not chant for like six months. I was not even sure I was going to continue with yoga. So, you know, I was experiencing intense betrayal, intense grief. And over the next six months or so in my own healing, I realized that even though there was this shadow component, that the yoga was true. And I tuned into what was really true for me, that I benefited from the yoga and the depth of the teachings and all that. So I tried to, instead of focus on what I lost, again, this is, here's the two sides of the coin. Grief, grief is a loss for sure. But when you embrace the grief, it takes you across the bridge of loss to gain. That we can also see what we gained. Like if we lose a loved one, what they gave us, the gifts they gave us, which you can't see right away because we're deep in the swamp of grief, which is necessary for the healing. So once I did that healing work and I came out, I was able to look back and say, yes, this was a betrayal, but I received so much, you know? So it's how not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but how not to ever repeat that again. And that was sort of my mantra and how to shift the betrayal as an impasse to a rite of passage. And that goes right with everything in life is for our awakening. You know, we are meaning-making machines. As human beings, we're meaning-making machines. It's not what happens to us that matters. It's the meaning we assign to what happens to us that matters. And we are free to create the meaning we want. So I could have said, oh, that was all my fault. I was too gullible. I was naive. Or no, it was all his fault that, you know, was like a Brutus and he just took advantage of me and how dare him and, you know, never again am I going to let that happen. I mean, all that was true for me at a certain stage. But then John Friend came to Kripalu in, it was 97. And when he taught, I just basically laughed myself into an awakened heart. I was wounded from the Kripalu experience and John really helped me heal. And I love that because his teachings were from the tantric tradition, which were all about, you know, our truest, highest nature is joy. You know, and why is the Shiva Nataraja, the, the dancing Shiva, that statue, why is Nataraja dancing? And it's the metaphor because life is meant to be a dance, not a dirge. I said, oh my God, I've been living the dirge of, oh, poor me. I was betrayed, you know, and triggered all my unworthiness issues and my core wounds and all that. And I started to get happier in my life. I dedicated 15 years to Anusara, which was wonderful. You know, I became, I would say, not close with John Friend, but close as colleagues. You know, near sort of the end, 2010, 2011, he called on me to teach on his behalf at the International Iyengar Conference in San Francisco. I was like scared, but I was honored, you know, to show up there to represent Anusara. So, and I was on the ethics committee, just how ironic that was, and the curriculum development committee. I mean, I really applied myself. And then after 15 years, you know, scandalous stuff came out against John Friend. And as part of the ethics committee, we actually sat down with him and asked him to step down to do healing work, psychological work, to just take a break. And that moment he refused. He went against his ethics board. And right in that meeting, several people resigned right away. I, I stayed. I stayed. But many of my colleagues just said, okay, 
then that's it. You know, the allegations and the scandal was was that severe that people, you know, just found it hard to to be with. Some change needed to happen. So that was part of it. And then, you know, John Friend did what he needed to do, you know, and he took a legal stance. He closed down. Uh, he had to find his safety in the way that he needed to. And I completely understand there's not a loser and a winner. And if we were to heal that community, we would have all had to come together and make winners out of everyone. That never happened, you know. And so we stayed at the karmic level, which is black and white, right and wrong. And nobody had a real chance to heal. I reached out, but he was unwilling to have the conversation with me. Yeah. He was offended that I reached out. Yeah. I said, I forgive you. And it was like, what do you forgive me for? I'm like, well, you know, he was just not there. I don't judge him for that. But I think this is part of what I teach is integration. Yoga is the integration of body, mind, emotions, heart, spirit. And if you're not doing your emotional work, if you're not, you know, standing in the gift of your wound, you will not have the wisdom to hold space for others in their wound. And then we become wounders. We perpetuate the wounding on others. You know, I can only have compassion for someone else to the extent that I'm compassionate with myself. Otherwise, I'm judging myself, my own sort of lesser evolved parts of my being, and I'm judging the other person. Well, there's no one out there. I'm reacting to you in the exact way that I react to myself. I mean, to me, this is the spirituality of relationship, is I can only be how I am with you because I can be that way with myself, you know? And that's why when I said something hurtful to the person I am or was in relationship with. I wasn't necessarily hurting her, but she took it that way. I was hurting myself. You know, I disrespected myself. I disrespected the goddess in me. And if there's a way that we can come together and see that, to take full ownership of that, then I think there's potential for healing. And when I look back at both of those experiences, after I branded my own method, I said, I never would have had the fire to say, okay, never again. I'm not joining another teacher or another community. I'm going to actually teach and teach from my heart, you know, to share this journey of my heart because it has worked for me. All these different principles and teachings, alignment techniques that I've adapted for Ashaya, here I am. So I look back, it's like, yeah, if those two scandals didn't happen, I wouldn't be here where I am today. And I think for all of us as yogis and teachers, how are you being with your life? In other words, how are you being with your past? Do you embrace it? Do you source the teachings from it? Or are you in denial about it? Do you push it away? Do you wish it never happened? Do you have all kinds of guilt and regret about what you said, what you shouldn't have said, who you were in, in all the relationships? Or can you see the present stands on the shoulders of the past? The future comes to us as a gift from the past because the light that we see now is eight and a half seconds late from the sun it takes eight and a half seconds for our eyeballs to see the light and then another billionth of a second to go from the light in the eyeballs to the brain to cognize oh that's that's vision like that's what i'm seeing so how we work with the past i think is everything and then we want to be in the present moment but we use the present moment to stand on the wisdom that 
we've extracted because of the meaning that we give to our experiences, not what the experiences are, it's the meaning we give to it so that we can create a future of destiny, worthwhile living. And we all have a destiny of greatness. I could say, well, you know, that's our potential. Whether someone chooses that or not is really the path of the heart. The fact is that what we see is Maya, meaning we're all living in this ephemeral world, that material like this table in front of me is solid and it's pulsing in and out of existence because of what quantum physics has proven this everything in the material world is a pulse of spirit. And, and so two things happen at the same time, you know, and that's why everyone has shadow and light. So if we're living in this illusion all the time, the tantric view, some other like earlier yogic views are like, okay, let's transcend this and get to a greater reality. But Tantra is really about let's embrace the illusion. And since we are living in the illusion that what we see in the material world appears real, but it's really flashing in and out of existence, let's create the Maya we wish for. You know, so what is your heart most deeply desire? These are the three Tantra questions. What is your heart most deeply desire? What value is that to you? And what are you prepared to do about it? That is my heart's compass because those three questions really help me discern and make the changes that I need to align, you know, to create sort of my life journey or this Maya, this sort of form of illusion to basically work it to my advantage. I think when spiritual teachers are not doing their deeper emotional work, and I, I can't say that they weren't doing their work, but it appears that, wow, there was like a lot of undigested core wounds underneath that. And when it was pointed out, they did not choose to surrender and do the deeper inner work. Neither of them. That's all of us. Like we don't present our shadow first, we present, we bring our best and we want to bring our best forward. And I think that's part of the beauty of the path of the heart. You know, we strive to be better. We strive to serve. We strive, everybody's wanting freedom from suffering. And so in doing the best we can, if we're not also embracing our shadow self, you know, and being humble as we go and trying to discern this idea of power and maybe greed for power, that we can get into trouble you know, and then we trip. And my hope for both of them is that they recognize that they tripped and that they be, they've become better people because of it. And if I'm going to give them a win, I can't make them wrong and say, you know, they lost, I won. I'm staying on the karma access. I can say, you know, everyone's on their journey that was theirs. It was a painful journey for them, I'm certain. I mean, it looked painful, <laughs> you know, it was certainly painful for me, but I'm better for it. So if I can take, take up like my expectation and my embarrassment or my shame for my own less evolved parts, I allow them to come forward and I be with them. I need to learn how to love my less evolved parts because otherwise my, perfect, my inner perfectionist, my inner critic is just going to judge the hell out of those parts. When I'm judging those parts in me and I, put, I deny those parts, I deny my shadow, I can't help but do the same thing in all my relationships and it just never ends well. So it brings me back to a heart of kindness, to a heart of compassion. 
And in my own journey, I talk about the three C's, which is, you know, when I'm going inside, I want to go in with the attitude of curious, to be curious, to be compassionate, and to be courageous. When I can do that, I'm able to extract the spirit wisdom from any experience that I have. Like everything in life is for our awakening. Okay, teach me how to get that. So to be curious, you have to open. We have to let go of our premonitions and our conditionings and all that. And that's what's so hard. We're so conditioned. And that's all limbic living. The prefrontal cortex is sort of like the wide open blue sky free of a cloud of conditioning where we actually have clear seeing. That's why I practice yoga. That's why I meditate every single day. You know, Every day I penetrate the clouds of my own conditioning to seek clear seeing. And a lot of that, it's embracing myself or crying in my meditation because my heart is so darn hurt, you know? But I don't necessarily fall apart completely because I've got myself. I love my life. I've got my practice. I have friends. I have grace and I understand life has my back. And this too is part of my, my growth. So, you know, I haven't given up. I'm still trying to make meaning out of the conflicts in my life. And I'm, I don't know, hopeful, we could say. <laughs> Can we talk about a definition of spirituality? Because sure. you've used the word several times and it in your book, it seems like you have a strong propensity towards spirituality. Like this has been such a major thread and theme through your life. And mm -hmm. I wonder how much of the trouble we get into is misunderstanding what this means and what spiritual accomplishment actually means in a human being. Because mm -hmm. it's so easy to get it mixed up with charisma. What is this actually? What does it mean about a person? And does it say anything about integrity? What, what is the role of a spiritual teacher in my life? I think there is an assumption made often that if someone is spiritually accomplished, that they have high levels of integrity, that the, <laughs> that the two are inseparable, right? And yet your experience shows that that doesn't seem to be the case. And in fact, if you like look out in the wider world, you, there are so many examples. I know, I know. Right? Where it's almost like an inverse <laughs> relationship. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that just brings me back around. Is like, what does this mean? What is spirituality? Spirituality is the integration of body, mind, and heart. Unless we're doing the work on all levels of our being, which encompasses light and dark, all chakras from the root up to the sixth or seventh chakra, depending on what system you follow, it's not spiritual. I have an opinion, and it's just an opinion or a view, that the Kripalu path, the teacher was incredibly heart-centered. You could feel like love was oozing from him. I felt so loved. I felt like grace, when he would walk into a room, I felt like grace had my back and I was wrapped in a blanket of grace that dissolved my problems, that told me I was safe, that told me I was okay on a cellular level. There are times when the bliss and the 
tingling sensation in my body was orgasmic to the extent of I just had to throw my arms up or I had to make a sound or you could see like in some of the Shakti sessions in earlier in the day, you know, in the early 80s, karma, the guru's presence was releasing samskaric imprints from lifetimes of suffering in the individuals, in the seekers. There's a term called Shakti Pata Hridaye. Shakti Pata is the descent of grace. Hridaya is the heart, into the heart of the student, into the open heart of the student. Like you can't receive Shakti Pata unless your heart is open. So when you open your heart, grace descends. And it can come from a teacher, it can come from grace, and come from the clouds. I mean, it, it doesn't, it's, it's just an aspect of life. We get an insight. We take a walk in the woods and it's the perfect moment. And sometimes we see things in nature that, oh my God, an eagle just flew over. And you, you have this insight and then the tears flow. That can come when someone develops one chakra or the higher chakras. You know, we say like heart is in the center. There's three spiritual chakras above and three below. You know, we could say there's three light chakras and three shadow chakras below. But each chakra has a positive and negative spin. There's deficiencies and excesses in each chakra. And in the tantric view, the three upper chakras are not superior to the three lower chakras. And in many traditions, the goal is to get the heck up and out. Like, let's get up to the seventh chakra and fly because life is suffering. And why are we hanging out here in the samsara, the pain of worldliness, that samsara? But the tantric view sees the word samsara instead of being held back by the flow. Sara means spirit or grace. And sam means like boundary, to be bound. So samsara means the sort of the disease of worldliness from that particular viewpoint is we got to get out of here. So let's do spiritual practice so we can transcend. Tantra sees the word samsara as the word sam as held, not bound, to be held by the world, to be supported by the world, which is an embrace of this material reality as the expression of the goddess herself. So the lower chakras are not inferior to the upper chakras. The lower chakras are incredibly powerful and beautiful when we can access the true spiritual nature of those. You know, same with the upper. I'm not saying the upper chakras are not like amazing. The, the heart, love, the throat for communication and truth and creativity and the ajna, the, the third eye to perceive reality, to command reality, which how to live in a state of, you know, non-dual consciousness, unity consciousness, and have a vision for something greater than just polarity. You know, the two eyes, are attached to the karmic world, which is the horizontal axis. But once you go up to the third eye, the one, the singular eye, you ascend to the lelic axis, and suddenly everything falls into place. In the tantric view, this world is not supposed to be a place that, you know, we're supposed to get out of, although there's like incredible suffering here. The world becomes heaven on earth. And that's part of a feature of sort of the underlying drive, the underlying motivations. I, my whole intent and purpose is to bring heaven on earth. 
And I do that through my teaching, through my classes, and through doing my own personal work, which is hard, which is deep in relationship on the landing field, you know, the playing field of life. We have to address karma, you know, and that's our, how we speak, what we do and all that while understanding that there is Leela as well. It's really a balance of work and play, being and doing. So I think the spirituality in my view, you know, I can just not saying I'm right, not saying I got all the answers, I'm just kind of speaking from my heart. You know, eh, this is what I discovered after 44 years is spirituality is all of it from earth to sky, all the five elements, all seven of the chakras, if you're into that system of seven, that's the delight of it all. It sounds like an overdevelopment in one aspect of spirituality can throw the whole system off balance and maybe be a bit dangerous or problematic to be overly developed in one aspect and not integrated in the other aspects. Does that reflect your point of view? Yes, it does. And everybody is unique in their capacity to balance all of that, balance shadow and light. And I think the teachers who have this streak of humility and capacity to sit with their own darkness that are not sort of power hungry, they're not on an ego trip, I'm kind of into, yeah, less is more. That's, that's the way of the goddess. Whereas the other way, you know, patriarchal, hierarchical structure is let's force this thing through and let's have power over. I believe in power, but it's always power to in power. Power with others, not power over. Was it Jimi Hendrix or some big singer that said, when the love of power is overcome by the power of love, there will be peace. So that's the heart, you know, that's the quality of the heart. And the heart has the daunting task of balancing as above, so below. We're both human and divine. We're both limited and unlimited. And honestly, I think that's the predicament that's at the root cause of all either integration, joy and happiness, or suffering and hurt. Whether you're a, you know, spiritual leader or yoga teacher, you know, or business person. I mean, it's as human beings, you know, I just, I found that the yogic path and the yogic teaching, especially with the tantric teaching has been an incredible guidance system for me to navigate the path of the heart. And one of my teachers always said, and if you're following your heart, it's always like walking down the path with a pebble in one shoe. It's never comfortable all the time. So what is our yoga? How to bring our comfort into our discomfiture. Like, all right, everyone, let's come down on our mat and let's do the pigeon pose. Like, oh, complaining. You know, it's like, oh, my hip hurts so much. We practice that in yoga. How to go into a stretch when you line up, you know, hopefully the pain is less, but oftentimes we hit these snags in the body, tensions in the body. You know, if it hurts, it should hurt good. Then we learn, we, we, we engage with that, hopefully, instead of coming out too early or not even attempting. Then we hold, we breathe into it, and ultimately we let go. And I really believe that doing yoga this way with consciousness and meditation, which is what I teach, we start 
to address and heal our own obstacles, these samskaric seeds. In fact, the meditation is designed, the mantra meditation that I lead is designed to burn samskaric seeds before they sprout. I think this puts a much deeper spin on why practice yoga and why teach yoga is we're helping people live happier lives physically and psychically. You know, these samskaras, you can't see them, but they're pattern responses. Why does someone just fly off the handle every time? And it's this imprint. Well, how are you dealing with the imprint? Well, I'm doing psychotherapy. Okay, is it helping? Well, I don't know, not really. I still have this bad back and all these other things, and I still fly off the handle. I think there's all kinds of means. Therapy is one of them. But I like the idea of working cellularly and psychically, as well as emotionally. You know, we need to reach out for support. We work on all levels, all at the same time, not to be charismatic gurus, but to be gurus in our own, in our own right. And the guru, the acronym is G, you are you. And that's been like the whole teaching of the guru is to awaken the wisdom inside of the student. So as teachers, we give the gift of joy to people. We give the gift of empowerment. And sometimes we give the gift of empathy and we just hold space for others, but we can't hold space if we're not for others, if we're not holding space for ourselves. Teaching is a sadhana, a spiritual practice, because the students that come are the direct mirrors to us, the things that we need to see ourselves and continue to grow. I think that's a great place to wrap up. If listeners are curious to hear more of your story and get your book and learn about what you do, where, where should they go? Um, they can go to Amazon. Um, I have it in hard copy and Kindle. And they can go to my website, ashayayoga.com. They can order it there. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much of your perspective and your experience and for writing this book and peeling back the curtains. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed speaking with you. This episode is part of a series with authors of recently published yoga books. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the series by looking above or below this episode in your podcast player. 